I have to be slightly careful with um, what I'm drinking. I once did an episode where I, I just did a book review on my own once, and um, I had this uh, chocolate milk, and uh, you know it was really nice, relaxing chocolate milk. So I'd have a sip every occasionally, and then my voice would just like drop an octave <laughs> when I did that. And then over the next five minutes, it would just gradually <laughs> go back again. <laughs> so this is like, at the beginning, it's like. Hi. <laughs> then, like, it would just go off again over the next five minutes. So I have to be slightly aware of that now yeah. to not make it sound completely like there's three people speaking. Okay, so I guess today we're talking about postdoc fellowships. I am joined for the second time on this podcast now by Toby Wise. So thank you for doing this, Toby. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I guess I, I already had one episode that's kind of similar to this, which was with Matthias Stangel, who's a postdoc at UCLA. And he, we kind of talked for about 50 minutes about how he got his postdoc position. And he got his through um, basically emailing potential supervisors out of the blue and saying, hey, I'm doing this thing. I'm interested in this. Can we talk? And then basically through that, he, I don't know whether he got more than one offer, but he definitely got at least one offer that he's very happy with. I guess today we'll be talking more about the other side of getting a postdoc position which is applying for a fellowship yourself to get some sort of grant money for which you can pay your salary or whatever so yeah, i guess the reason i invited you to, to talk about this is because i'm i've got one year left basically on my phd and you know i guess at some point i have to start thinking about what i'm yes. going to do afterwards Yes. One question will be how, from when should I start doing that? But that's maybe a question for later. But yes, yeah, so it's definitely something on my mind. And you already had on your website, I think you had a statement like, if you ever want to know anything about like these fellowship applications, just send me an email or something like that. I think so. Yes, I <laughs> did that. And um, yeah, so I guess today we were talking about that. And to maybe set the scene a little bit, I guess the idea is that this is also you know, that this is generally useful for people considering applying for postdoc fellowships. But of course, your experiences are somewhat specific. So we'll kind of use those because, you know, those the best. Um, and you were awarded the Sir Henry Welcome Fellowship or postdoc fellowship, um, which I think is probably the best fellowship from the UK to get. Is that fair to say? Or? Um there are very few of them at the postdoc level so it looks very cool from the outside at least yeah no um, it was it was very good it was very good yeah was very and um so yeah i guess we'll kind of be using that as an example at the same time i can maybe ask some questions that relate to my position so maybe we can get like a bit of a example counter example or yeah. kind of yeah just thinking through sounds things. good so to maybe get like a um I was just curious about this. This will probably lead to the first topic, which is you have this the sentence I, I referred to earlier. Um, there's another one you have on your website, which is right on the front page, which is please feel free to get in touch if you'd like to talk about anything research related, whether it's science or career advice. Reaching out to random scientists can be intimidating for junior students slash researchers, researchers, particularly if you're from a background that's underrepresented in academia. I want to make it clear here that I'll always welcome this i can be reached here sorry yeah, i can't read anyway so you have the sta statement on your website and i was just curious is there a story behind that or why did you specifically put that like so uh like you know like there's a website that's like hey i'm toby on postdoc blah 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 i do this there and then that's kind of the statement so i'm just curious like is there anything a story behind that or um, yeah are you just nice I've, that actually came about last 
lot more. What year are we on now? Oh, it came about in 2020 when, um, obviously, you know, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff going on in the world generally about, uh, you know, racism and things like that, um, around the time of the Black Lives Matter protests. And on Twitter, there were a lot of people kind of highlighting various kind of inequalities that exist in academia and people talking about well, what could we do to try and improve the level of equity that's out there in, in our, in our field. Um, and I mean, one thing that I realized is that if you, particularly if you're someone who is from any kind of background that's not well represented in science, it does feel a bit awkward to just reach out to scientists who, you know, look like they're, uh, you know, very, uh, well respected and professional and experienced, uh, and potentially world famous, um, and ask them for advice. Um, and so I thought, you know, one thing I could do to help that in my little small way is just to put a statement on the website that explicitly says, I don't mind if you email me. Cause I mean, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm not from <laughs> such a background, but I remember even myself as an undergrad or master's student, you know, emailing prospective PhD supervisors or anything was terrifying because you're, you know, they're people who, you know, you've read their papers and you're like, why would they even have the time to respond to me? And so then you just like often don't end up doing it when in reality, they'd probably be quite happy to hear from you. So I thought make that explicit. Okay. Cool. Yeah. 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 I mean, I agree with that. I, I'm also not from, I'm not sure I'm in any minority. Um, I guess I'm always an immigrant because I, I'm from several countries, but apart yes. from that, I, I basically have like no, uh, yeah, I'm in no sense of minority. But I remember also like just in in second year, you know, wanting to get research experience and just asking someone who was like a lecturer or a senior lecturer where I was studying, and just asking them like, "Hey, can I like help out?" <laughs> just like just yeah. just doing that was terrifying. <laughs> yeah, and you, yeah. you know, stand in front of the office and go like, "Oh God, what am I doing? They're just gonna like throw me out." Yeah. <laughs> and then of course they don't. Exactly. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's nice, I think, to make that very clear up front for people. And then, yeah. yeah. Has anyone taken you up on the offer? Or um, I think I've had a couple of emails actually. Um, but I mean, my, myself, like you know, I'm not a world famous professor of anything. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I don't have people like begging me to come and work in my lab because my lab doesn't exist. Um, yeah. So. No, I was just curious because sometimes these offers can be. I think often these offers just aren't taken up, right? Sometimes you have even even when people do that, it can still be intimidating to ask. Oh, absolutely, yeah, um, yeah. It's not going to solve all problems, but it's it's certainly a step in the right direction. Yeah. I think. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I was just curious. I guess in terms of structure for this conversation, um, you have written two blog posts on your website. I have um, one called "How to Apply for a Postdoctoral Fellowship in Ten Easy Steps," and I like that they're easy. That makes it nice. <laughs> um, and the second is called How to Survive a Fellowship Interview. Um, so I guess we can probably just use that as a structure because I guess it's kind of the order that makes most sense. And, yeah, that sounds good. Um, kind of expand on it because it's, I guess, the nice thing of your blog post is that it's fairly short. Each step yeah. is, you know, a brief summary of like kind of what goes on in each step. Yeah. That, of course, also means it might be nice to have a bit more context, a few more examples, yeah, of that kind of stuff. Um, so, I, so the first step you have is called decide whether the fellowship route is for you. And I thought we'd start with a text message exchange that you put in there. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Um, so I'm assuming you're the green person. So, I am the green person. Um, I won't reveal so, who the other person is. Yeah, you said, <laughs> I was looking at Welcome Trust fellowships yesterday. All the previous awardees have CVs that make me want to cry. They all seem to have worked at the greatest labs in the world and have had like 10 plus publications by the end of their PhDs. 
to which uh, an unnamed person responded, Jesus Christ, full stop, end of text, end of message. <laughs> which I think is great because it first suggests that Jesus Christ is the answer to your problems. And <laughs> yes. also I think is very representative of especially the fellowship that you got. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, so I, I don't want to... I feel like I've been talking a bit too much already, but I thought I'd like to just expand slightly on uh, this. <laughs> all previous awardees have CVs that make you want to cry. <laughs> so when I first heard about this, the this Henry Welcome thing, um, I think I heard it in the context of Steve Fleming, who yes. um, is now a professor, do you say? I'm not exactly yes, sure what his exact profession yeah. is. But... Um, you know, he has the kind of CV where you you want to compare yours. If you compare yours side to side, there's just no point at which you could compete. Yeah, like, no, you'll okay, never come out that feeling very good about yourself. Cambridge <laughs> and had like a first and then got into the UCL Welcome Trust PhD, which is, I think, the most competitive PhD yeah. program in the yeah. UK in for neuroscience. Yeah. Had a science publication, worked in Ray Dolan's lab. Uh, uh, I, I or I so. was it? Or I think it don't, I don't know if it was between or, multiple labs, but he certainly yeah. worked with Ray at some point. And at some point you go like, okay, there's just no point I compete with this here. And how are you supposed to be better than this? And then I heard of Demis Asabas, who, yes. um, <laughs> you know, was a like child prodigy in chess and, um, f he finished school at 16. And then to, I think, bridge the time to university, he created Rollercoaster Tycoon. Yeah. Uh, one of the very <laughs> successful. Uh, yeah. As you do. Um, and then. Yeah, I got a first from Cambridge. So, you know, it's like it's just very ridiculously impressive. Yeah, absolutely. and so now I'm trying to make a transition without insulting you. Um, <laughs> no, please because, do. <laughs> okay. because I think the nice thing about yours is you have you know obviously an impressive CV, but it seems relatable. <laughs> yeah. It's not like oh, at yeah. every point you go, oh, they maxed out yes. of how impressive that step is. Um, you know, obviously you didn't you know, sit around for a few years and then walked up to the Welcome Trust and said, hey, can you give me money? Um, but I think the nice thing is that I guess for people who don't at every step of their academic career have basically maxed out what you can yeah. achieve, um, I think you're an example of someone who's more realistic in that sense and still got it. So, Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I I think... The, the the reason like you I mean you see those people and remember them because they have excelled in every single way they possibly yeah. can and deservedly so I mean they're brilliant scientists um, yeah it's definitely not a criticism you can't argue with that at all but the, but then you kind of don't you kind of ignore the people who also get these fellowships and maybe don't have papers in science or nature or whatever and I mean, there are also people out there who you obviously don't know about who have the papers in science and nature and these ridiculous CVs who don't get these fellowships. I, I've, right. I've met them. I know they exist. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think we end up with this very biased view that, that you have to be one of those people. And it's just not the truth at all. Those people obviously get these things, but so do a lot of people who are more, uh, have, <laughs> who aren't superstars in the, the kind of typical sense we think of in science. Yeah. And yeah, maybe one question I had here is then basically, why did you apply for it then? Because it seems like you had a, you know, good or very good CV. And, you know, I mean, the reason we mentioned CVs is because you have these committees have to base their decision yes, on something. And if lots of good people apply at some point, you just end up deciding on somewhat random topics <laughs> like where someone went or, yeah, you yeah. know, general 
impressions. Um, so I was, I was just curious, like when you say, when you write like here that it seemed like everyone else was so much better than you, you got awarded the thing. <laughs> well, why did you apply then? Or how did, I uh, mean, yeah, how, what was your thought process like at the, uh, it's a long time ago, then? but, um, I think, so one thing was that I'd seen those people, but I'd obviously seen other people, obviously, who, had who didn't have you know like i said papers in science or whatever and had still been successful i'd also been to a session at my university where they'd kind of given us a bit of detail about what panels are looking for and these things and that i think made it seem like a more realistic goal because they've made it clear that you know you don't need the most impressive cv in the world there are other things that you'll be judged on and so i think it ultimately became clear to me that i was in a position where i would have a relatively decent chance as far as my CV went. Um, and so then, you know, I was someone who valued independence and thought I would really enjoy, you know, being able to kind of drive my own research in the, the way that a fellowship allows you to do. So I thought, why not give it a go? At worst, I don't get it. And I've wasted a little bit of time, but it just seemed like it was worth a try at least. Yeah. So maybe, I mean, I guess in step one, deciding where the fellowship route is for you. Um, and you touched on it. One of the criteria for you was that you liked the independence. Yes. That kind of thing. So I'm just curious. Uh, yeah. Who is the fellowship route for and who should maybe, uh, I mean, assuming you want to do research and say in academia, mm. um, who is a fellowship for or who should maybe not because they're not good or anything, but just because of whatever reason for whom might, for example, applying for a position in someone's lab where the PI got funding be more appropriate for? Yeah, so I I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, you were kind of assuming that you do want to focus on research and in academia as well. If you, if you care more about teaching, then a fellowship obviously wouldn't be the best approach. Um, I, I know some people just find that they would rather have more kind of guided training for their postdoctoral years um in a way that you don't get so much with a fellowship where more of the responsibility is on you so basically if you have a fellowship you do work in people's labs but the idea is that you are the one who's coming up with the research questions and identifying the places to work and essentially you're responsible for leading the direction of that research as well as the day-to-day and so you don't necessarily have that kind of more hands-on guidance through your research career that you'd get from a standard postdoctoral position. You don't have someone telling you, okay, here is a research question that I think we should investigate. Here is how I think we should do it. And, um, go do and, it. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> which, which can be valuable and which I know some people <clears throat> definitely kind of prefer that approach. So it's not that, you know, one's right or one's wrong. It's very much whether you would rather have that independence or have that more kind of guided route through your, your postdoc. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing I always thought about because it it seems to me that I've kind of found something I want to do and that obviously I'm combining elements that are already there, but mm. the thing that I exactly want to do, I don't see anyone really doing. So it seems yeah. to me that for that kind of thing, a fellowship might be, uh, yes. you know, if I were to get one, that would be a good idea uh, yeah. because I could kind of, you know, go to person A who's doing something and person B who's doing something and kind of combine them um, yeah, I mean that's exactly the sort of thing that they're they're great for, um, and yeah, it, it does depend on. Also, I guess like you kind of hinted there, having your own research idea as well. If you do, if you come up with your PhD just thinking like I'm vaguely interested in this, but I don't really know exactly how <laughs> I want to do it, then you know there's no point in applying fellow, for a fellowship because you wouldn't have a proposal to put put, put up uh, in front of the committee in the first place. But if it is that, you right. know, you've identified this problem and there's not necessarily anyone working on that as a whole, 
then that's a perfect opportunity to try and get some funding to do it yourself. So do you remember how you developed your idea? Like, did you, did, was it like clear from you from the beginning? Like, oh, I have this thing I want to do. Or was it more, you know, you heard about fellowships that you could do your own thing. And then you think like, well, what could I do? Or yeah, kind of what was the, because I think if I remember correctly, your PhD seems slightly different from what you yeah. did in your fellowship, right? And can yeah, you maybe my, like, yeah, like very briefly summarize what you did in your PhD? And yeah, uh, yeah, my, fellowship? my my PhD was quite different. So my PhD was basically structural and neurochemical imaging and neuroimaging in people with depression and bipolar disorder. And then I, my fellowship, I went on to look at kind of computational modeling, mostly of behavior um, with a bit of imaging as well, uh, focused on anxiety. So there was quite a change. I'd never done any, any kind of computational modeling or anything in my life before, um, but I'd, I'd learned a bit about it enough that I could put together a proposal. Yeah, um, I guess it's not like a complete 180, no, right? Because you were still doing neuroimaging and psychiatry. Yeah, psychiatry it's the sort of thing but, where yeah. I think if I'd been proposing to do it without any support and training, you know, without working with people who were experts in that field, you anyone would have laughed at the idea. But with that, with the support provided by the fellowship, then that it kind of made it a bit more realistic. And I think a, a, a possibility when it wouldn't have been otherwise. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so how did you go from one to the other? So, so yeah, I'd, I'd been getting into the, the kind of computational psychiatry, essentially just I'd been to a course run at UCL and I've been reading these papers right. and talking to people about it and I found it interesting and I thought it was something that I wanted to pursue a bit further. Um, and so at the same time as learning that fellowships were a thing and maybe I could apply, I was getting into these ideas and sort of coming up with you know, thick hypotheses I think I, I thought I wanted to test. And so I, you know, I bounce these off people who knew more than me <laughs> to, to see whether they're reasonable and eventually kind of managed to come up with an idea for a So project. this was still people like within your, you know, people you're working with or were you already asking, you know, people who, you, who might supervise you for the postdoc or, yeah. So initially I was just kind of chatting to people who I knew who like other PhD students and postdocs uh, where, where I was doing my PhD just because I, I very much wanted to you know someone to just say okay yeah you're not being completely stupid this does <laughs> yeah. seem reasonable because I you don't know all the time um and I think I talked to a couple of people I knew who'd who were a bit more senior and um had had fellowships themselves um and so yeah then once I did that then it was kind of moving on yep. to finding who I wanted to work with and talking to them about it okay cool so I guess by now people will probably roughly know whether fellowship might be for them or not. Um, Hopefully, <laughs> you've been listening to this. I'd, I'd also say though, like you, you know, again, don't doubt yourself. I think it, it's worth applying for these things, even if you genuinely believe you don't have a particularly good shot, because it does help you kind of form ideas for your future research, and it helps you make connections with people as well. So it's not, you know, even if you don't get it, it's really not wasted time. Um, yeah, I guess the, the the point maybe is also that you think you have something you want to do rather you th rather than you think you've got the brilliant idea that the field needs and that's the best thing that ever right it's yeah. more about like how much independence do you yes. want in your in the next po position basically right that's exactly kind of the, yeah. yeah okay so step two think of a rough <laughs> project idea i guess that so i had a yep I should maybe finish one thought before i start the second um <laughs> so step two is think of a rough project idea and i guess how closely this relates to your previous research really depends on the scheme, I would imagine. So I recently saw some sort of Word document that I guess the Wellcome Trust gave out because they've 
for, for, for this uh, Henry Wacom Fellowship because there they had like four completely different examples of like one person wanted to continue more or less doing what they did. Someone else wanted to like com- go from like, I don't know, humans to animal physiology or something and needed completely new training. One person, you know, yeah. whereas I'm assuming there's probably some fellowships that are much more closer to like, show me that what you did before yeah. and how you're going to continue that. But um yeah, I think it, it, it will depend on the funder and the scheme. Some funders are generally more risk averse generally and will be less happy to entrust you with something you've never done before. Whereas like the welcome trust are generally quite happy for you to go and do something new as long as you're well supported in doing it. Yeah. And I guess also like right now we're still talking about not writing the proposal, but it's kind of just having an idea of what you want to do. Yeah. Um, so you can then, um, steps three and four are find the fellowships scheme and identify potential sponsors and talk to them so i guess finding a fellowship scheme seems like a pretty obvious step um although one thing i always find surprising is how difficult sometimes it is to find funding opportunities that are already out there yes um, do you have any advice for is that you think there'd be like a central database right but there seems to be lots of like yeah. schemes where sometimes there's like a small thing here or yeah yeah you know. someone has made a database that i've seen on twitter before <laughs> so there is so i don't um we'll have to find it but there is a database out there specifically of, of postdoctoral fellowships all around the world as well um otherwise aside from just kind of googling yourself most universities will have some sort of research funding office um who will be able to direct you mm. to relevant schemes generally they have grants offices who who know what's out there and, and what you could apply for with with postdoctoral fellowship fellowships specifically the opportunities are relatively limited so for example in the uk the welcome trust have a postdoctoral fellowship and then a, a more senior one uh, but like the medical research council don't have the same equivalent of that kind of postdoctoral mm-hmm. fellowship there are some sort of things going on there, but not not the same fellowship as 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 the Welcome Trust, where you literally get given your own money for five years and get to do your own thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think many funding agencies are not quite so happy to give out a load of money to someone who's just finished their PhD <laughs> as they might be to someone who's more senior. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess these. Th- yeah, I mean, I guess um, maybe f- finding a fellowship scheme is also part of the people you'll be working with, you know, you have like potential sponsors or supervisors or whatever you want to call them, because I yes. guess they all be more aware of schemes in their country, etc. Yes. In, yeah. Because I think that's a huge difference, right? Like in, for example, in Europe, the Marie Curie thing is a fairly big one. If you're changing countries, I think, I think, I think yes. yeah. Um, yeah. I think Germany, for example, has a fairly large exchange fellowship scheme from the like German foreigns i don't know what it was called the drd okay. so i think like these are probably really specific to where you're from yes. where you did your phd yeah. where your yeah. next supervisor whatever is and yeah and they, they all have their own eligibility criteria as well right, that you right. need to be aware of in terms of potentially your nationality or where you've done your phd um, yeah exactly so yeah it's, it's not necessarily <laughs> straightforward these, these things do require a little bit of work to figure out unfortunately yeah, but I think the good thing is also that there are often more schemes than one might think. Just because yes. they're, they're not, ob- it's you know, it's not as obvious as you have the Welcome Trust and they have one scheme. It's like you have all these other things. Yeah, I mean, like one true. really random example. So this is just from my master's, so it's slightly different, but the, the, the principles still the same. That so I did the dual master. What's it called? 
dual masters and brain and mind sciences that that's one year at ucl and one year in paris oh yeah and um so i by pure chance happened to live with someone who was french in london uh, so i was in london and she happened to be living with her and she had applied for a scholarship from the british embassy for french people oh. to come over because there is this entente cordiale scholarship that um, was set up like 50 years ago or something for postdoctoral students from the UK to go to France and France to go to the UK. <laughs> I okay, applied, yeah. like, I, only because I was living with someone who happened to be yeah, from the, yeah. the other direction, I even found out about this and I applied and got it, right? Like, and I think one of the reasons <laughs> I got it is because no one knows about it. <laughs> yeah, no, there, there are loads of these, like, relatively yeah. small pots of money out there that can can fund these sorts of things. Um yeah, but yeah, they're often a bit hard to to find unless you know what. Yeah, and I've yeah, I've, I mean, yeah, it's. I mean, I'm glad because you know, otherwise, good people yeah. would have applied and I might have not gotten it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but still, it's just yeah. Um, anyway, so I guess the it seems to me like one of the biggest steps here is finding people who will sponsor you for your fellowship, right? Yes. I say that as as if I had that thought myself, but I realized the first line is a fairly crucial step is finding sponsors. <laughs> so yes. I guess I'm just <laughs> plagiarizing you here. Um, but the... Um, so how do you go about doing that? I mean, is it... it yeah, I mean, maybe how was it in your case? Maybe let's start there. Okay. Um, I mean, I guess Ray Dolan is always an obvious <laughs> yes. idea yeah. if you want to get... Sponsoring, but um, so it yeah. In my case, I spoke to a couple of people because because I hadn't worked in this field before. I didn't really know necessarily. I, I knew who some names were, but I didn't know who would be best to work with. So I took, spoke to a couple of people I knew about this and got some recommendations. And it seemed like yeah, uh, the Max Planck Center at UCL was the best place to be. And so I actually reached out to my other sponsor first, uh, Peter Diane. Um, partly oh, I didn't realize he was he, one of the sponsors. Yeah, okay. sorry, it was him and him and Ray Dolan and Dominic Buck uh, in London. But, but, but you were sorry, you were with working with Dean Mobs at Caltech, right? Yeah, things changed. <laughs> oh, okay, it's complicated, okay, but yeah, uh, things changed. Ah, I think I okay, didn't realize that. Shift. Um, but I'd, I'd reach out to Peter partly because um, he he yeah. really is one of the most respected kind of computational neuroscientists in the world, and I kind of thought, you know, if I'm proposing yeah. something that's completely stupid. I'd rather kind of go to him directly and have him tell me that than sort of <laughs> get excited that this is going to be a thing and then later tell him, have him tell me I'm going to do it. But no, thankfully he yeah. was very supportive as he always is. And he put me, then kind of put me in touch with Ray and, and then, uh, we ended up kind of putting the proposal together. Um, and I, uh, yeah, Ray invited me to, to go and give a talk at the, the Max Planck Center. Um, so I got to meet all the people there, which was huh. tough, but, but enjoyable as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and yeah. So basically, just out of curiosity, so I mean, I mean, by by random chance, I guess I know that Dominic Bach was in Zurich because number one, yes. I actually almost applied for a PhD with him, but then I ended <laughs> up getting a PhD with one of his former postdocs, Christoph Korn. Yeah. Um, and so I, so why how you wanted to go to Zurich, or what was the plan? Yeah, so that was the original plan. Um, but then I mean, Dominic had warned me in advance, but Dominic ended up moving to. To the Max Planck Center at UCL. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and for personal reasons, I wanted to go to America. Um, so, right, okay. uh, so the two things kind of combined to make it make more sense to go elsewhere. And so then you just had to well. find someone else. And then yes, and I mean, I always wanted to like, Dean I, or I, no, no, I always wanted to work with Dean anyway because he's 
okay. Always done really exciting stuff. So it, was, it all worked out perfectly. Um, it wasn't my plan, but it worked out very well. But I mean, it's, as much as you propose something very clear and well thought out for the fellowship, many times that is not what you end up doing because things do change um, and you can't avoid that. But so, I mean, I know that these are like, it might seem like a diversion but i think this kind of stuff is actually important to know that like it seems like from the outside can seem like when you're doing this oh no everything's like not working out but it seems like that you're saying like that's just kind of part of applying for fellowships or yeah it is in terms of do you mean in terms of uh how it plays out once you've actually got the thing or in terms of the application itself uh okay so i mean i maybe actually the, the to, to answer your question with another question is did <laughs> Did this change like during the? So I assume this changed during the application process, or is it more you got the thing awarded, then you realize like ah, oh, can't get. Yeah, it was, a, it was the latter. So it's after oh, after okay. I've been like in doing it for like a year or something. Um, right. So oh, I yeah, see, it was I a, okay. A and then the welcome trust was just fine with you. Changing yeah, I mean, as long as I could show that I had a plan in place and adequate support, it, it was okay. It's not, okay, again, okay. again, it's not an uncommon situation. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess academics yeah. move all the time. I mean, exactly. I started my PhD in Hamburg and now I'm in Heidelberg, so. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, yeah, these things happen. So, yeah. Okay. But I, I guess I, I guess can, I, I can yeah, extend so. a bit on the, on sort of finding people to work with. Because yeah, exactly. That'd be great. I think it's going to vary from person to person because it may be that you already know people who you'd, you'd like to work with. I, you know, where I was kind of switching fields a bit, I didn't have that. Um, those kind of relationships in place but something that's i think quite important to note is that often particularly for the, the fellowship i had but i believe for others as well you shouldn't be proposing to work with people you've worked with before so it's generally recommended that you go and find a new lab somewhere so that you're not just basically doing a continuation of your phd they want you to be working on new ideas with new people and and really taking advantage of the independence you get I think there's always a concern if you stay at the lab you're working for your PhD that you'll still be working under your PhD supervisor. You'll be working on the same stuff you've done. It doesn't sound very independent. Exactly. So yeah, but there are, I'm aware of some cases where people have got them working with the same supervisor in their PhD, but generally that's not recommended. And even you should go to a different like institution. So it's not just moving labs, it's moving. I mean, the Wellcome Trust even says like you should do two different ones, right? Like one outside the UK even, right? Yeah. So I I don't know. So they've, they've changed all their fellowship funding schemes now. And I can't remember what the guidance is for the, the new one, but, um, for yeah, the one when I applied for the one I had, um, yeah, it was a requirement that you spent at least some time in a different lab. I can't remember if they said outside the UK or not, but mm-hmm. I think it's generally assumed yeah. that you would go outside the UK. Yeah, I guess you can do independent work with your PhD supervisor, but yeah, it does look basically like you, <laughs> I mean, e- either you didn't finish what you meant to finish doing your PhD. Yes, exactly. Or yeah, you're just continuing. Yeah. 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 It just doesn't sound very independent. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm really wondering about this for me because it seems to me I kind of have, it's a really weird thing where to, you know, I, let's just say I work in like social neuroscience or you might call it neuroeconomics or, mm. or whatever, like decision making and social situations. And that uses a bunch of neuroscience, a bunch of psychology, economics. Yeah. Um, and I don't even know who I would go to right now. I don't have <laughs> like an obvious, I feel like, you know, I've got my idea. Um, that's, you know, somewhat vague, but also somewhat becoming more precise. Yeah. I mean, is it just a matter of, uh, yeah, contacting people and who you think might be 
good and then maybe they say actually no this doesn't really work but you know i know this person who might help you out there or who, who where there might be a better fit or yeah. yeah i'm just curious like what the process would be uh, yeah yeah i mean you, you can just email people um, yeah. it's it's obviously always going to be better if you have some sort of connection already because that always helps unfortunately but yeah you can just email people and often people it will be quite open to potential fellowship applicants asking them for support obviously because most people are quite nice and want to help out <laughs> with 30 hero, re- yeah. hero researchers but also like selfishly um yeah. you know if they get a funded postdoc in their lab that you know they can't really complain so there are you know, multiple motivations for people to want to help out um you know and as long as you're something is also they only get like if they only get a postdoc if the app if the proposal is yes. good <laughs> Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they um, only get a good <laughs> stock yeah i mean we shouldn't be too cynical i genuinely believe that most people are doing it do, do support people in this because they they want to help out and yeah, yeah. That themselves um uh so yeah you can just email people and ask about these things like as long as you're someone who seems reasonably competent and has some sort of cv um i don't think any, anyone's just gonna kind of shoo you away and tell you to <laughs> to give up or, or anything like that mm. people you know will be open to, to talking about it um and yeah if, even if they can't personally themselves help you out they may put you on to other people who can yeah yeah i guess i mean i have related to cynicism i have one question which is maybe uh, maybe this is again some of the like selection bias or whatever that you mentioned but it seems to me that basically everyone who's in that scheme at least the, the one you're in is in one of the very famous labs as a as a postdoc right i mean you're an example of this yourself right yeah how necessary is that it seems to me almost when you look at like the list of of labs where or the the labs where people do these fellowships in it can sometimes seem like why would i even contact someone who's not at a famous university or a famous name because it seems like only the yes you know only the big names will be selected so it's i find that really difficult yeah yeah there is a certain element of that which probably isn't how it should be but uh sadly that is how it i think seems to work because i mean ultimately part of what you're being judged on is how well supported you will be in the lab that you're going to and if that lab has a real track record of producing world-class research over decades you know there's no question there at all if you're proposing to go and work with someone who has been a pi for one year and is supervised like one phd student then there's a bit of a question about whether that person is going to be able to give you the support that you need. So it's not ideal, but I think that is something that plays into it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I also to maybe like not make it, you know, I, I'm not actually that cynical about it because, you know, obviously, as you said, like if you work in Ray Dolan's or Peter Dayan's lab, like, yeah, you're, if they also have chosen you as someone they want to work with. Yeah, that seems like that's like, yeah, you'll probably do well. <laughs> yeah yeah it's also yeah having their endorsement and and as part of these applications often you need reference letters letters of support from those people and so if you have a world famous <laughs> neuroscientist saying yeah, yeah. yes this person is great and i want them to work with me that's not going to do any do you any harm um but i like i should say i know people who've got these things working in less famous labs and um at less well-known universities and you know that's obviously worked for yeah. them. so it's not you know it's not something you necessarily need it no and i wonder also to what extent that's just a i don't know exactly what the bias would be would this be selection bias i'm getting confused with my biases but of course you yeah. um if people think that then they'll be more likely to contact the big names in the first place yeah so there'll be more applicants from those places anyway exactly so, yeah 
And the other thing that happens is people who are applying with those labs are working with people who have more experience of applying for these kind of grants right. themselves. And so yeah. you get potentially better support and better advice in the application process and make, that makes you more likely to get it in the first place. So there's that yeah. factor as well. Um, yeah, you'd, you'd figure Ray Dolan would know how to write a grant application yes. by now. Yes. So I, I think there are multiple reasons. Um, but yeah, I, I like, I would say work with the person who's, who is the best person to yeah. work with and that, you know, that's ultimately what they should be judging you on is, you know, if you're choosing to work with the people who are the best people to work with, who are going to give you the best kind of training and support, then as long as you can explain that and justify it, I don't think you should encounter any major problems really. Yeah. Um, one thing you mentioned that I hadn't, I was kind of aware of it, but not as explicit as you just made it, which is the letters of support from your sponsors or from referees. Yeah. Um, what do what would they write if you know they don't maybe know you beforehand is it is it a kind of thing where they where they would say like oh i've i've seen toby's publications and they're good publications and his proposal's good or like i mean what do they write if they haven't if they uh, don't know you that well yet uh, right? I, because I, I can't say the proposal's good because like <laughs> that's what the well yes what the, I, I, what the ground no, is I mean, judging. they they can comment on your 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 history of research and normally before you, before they agree to support you, you know, you will have met them a few times. You may have presented to them. You may have, you know, who knows? You may have met at a conference or something like that. They've probably got some idea of who you are, what you've been doing, and whether they think it's it's good. Um, and they probably wouldn't be supporting you if they didn't think you're doing good work. Um, so they they can comment on on your CV. I wouldn't worry too much about it because the people who will be writing these letters of support for you have normally done them before and know what to, what to say. They also have uh, like conflict of interest in writing you a good letter. Absolutely. Yes. I, I know. But I think it's, it's in terms of letters from your sponsors, more of a, you know, just making sure that, that they are fully committed to supporting you. You know, if you get a letter that's just like has in, <laughs> inaccuracies or barely says anything, <laughs> you can assume that yeah. maybe, that, maybe that PI has just kind of done this as, as a formality just because they, someone told them they had to and aren't really being that supportive. But otherwise, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it shouldn't be the sort of thing that's gonna uh, make or break your application. Yeah. Okay. So I guess we're now on to. So I guess we're assuming now you've you've decided that you want to do your own thing in this kind of fellowship. You've had a rough idea. You've contacted sponsors. They yep. seem to think it's a good idea, and say they'll support you. So now you actually have to apply, right? Yes. <laughs> now starts the actual application <laughs> in that sense. Uh, so you have to write a proposal, which I. I'm assuming is the. I mean, it seems also the way from your from your blog post that way that the the research proposal is the main part of the application itself. Generally, yes, um, it would be. And yeah, I'm assuming this will probably really differ between grant schemes. Right? Yeah, definitely, they'll have all sorts of different requirements in terms of length or things that you need to include. Generally, for a postdoctoral fellowship, they'll be less in depth than they would be for a more senior fellowship. So you might be expected to write something that's actually surprisingly short, given how much money you're asking for. Yeah. Um, and you then said a thousand five hundred words, right? Yeah, that's what mine was, which is that's like uh, what three A four pages in single yeah, lines, single spaced or something. Uh, yeah, uh, maybe even less. I can't remember now, but it was it was very very little, uh, <laughs> given how yeah how big it seems to you the project and the, the amount of money. Um, but yeah, other other than that, the applications are generally filled with 
other kind of random information about you know who your sponsor is going to be, who collaborators are going to be, where you're going to be working, whether there are ethical approvals that will be in place, things like that, which are quite you know minor um, yeah. things. So the proposal is really the core of it. That's what your work is going to be judged on. There, in some applications, there'll be other parts where you might have to give like a lay summary or something like that. But generally, the proposal is is where it's all at. Yeah, yeah. I was really surprised that it's that short. I guess in in this specific scheme, you know, just to highlight that again. Yeah. Um. I mean, I, I guess like my, longer. you know, I've read like my supervisors. He had like a Emmy Nutter grant, which is like a German thing, mm. and that's but that's to have like three people work for you also yeah um so then you really have to outline like what the different projects are and that's i don't know 20 pages long or something like that. yes right? it's yeah much, much more in detail and you have to actually like outline individual experiments and that kind of stuff yeah uh, did you have to outline experiments or i mean thousand front of words seems like you yeah yeah i mean it for me it was kind of more breaking it down into projects that i'd be working on so it's i think it's like you know first year and a half i'll do project one second year i'll do project mm-hmm. two and then i can't remember the exact timings but something like that and so each project wasn't necessarily like a concrete experiment of this is exactly what i'll do it's more i'll use these kind of methods to ask ask these kinds of questions and this will give me you these mean something like i'll develop the behavioral experiment and the computational yeah. modeling exactly for this thing in part one and part two we'll put it in the scanner or something yeah like exactly that, or, that sort okay. of thing so yeah it 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 didn't require that much detail. I have seen others for the same scheme that have been a lot more detailed. So it's not necessarily that one approach is right and another is wrong. And obviously then for other schemes, I, I'm mm-hmm. sure there are others out there that will require a lot more detail. So it's, it does definitely depend on the scheme. But the the thing that's more important in the proposal is really selling your idea um, and explaining uh, why they should <laughs> why they should be giving you the money, which I think is at least as important if not more important. Um, Sorry, as part of the proposal or like in addition? It, as part of the proposal. As part of it. So okay. throughout the proposal, you'll want to be, you don't want it to be literally just like, you know, I want to answer this question. Here are the experiments I'm going to do to do it to, uh, to, to get these answers. This will tell me this. You really need to explain why it's an important topic and why they should be funding you to do it and why you're going to be working at the best place in the world to do this. So essentially from that proposal, it should be really clear why they should be giving you the money not just why scientifically it's uh, a good idea. You had a sentence, I don't actually, I copied it in, I don't know where exactly it's in your blog post, but the sentence is, you have to explain why you're the greatest scientist ever to have lived. Yes, um, <laughs> which is very, that's very step seven. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, so my question here is, why is Toby the greatest scientist, scientist <laughs> to have ever lived? I mean, yeah, you have oh, to answer yeah. this, right? So like, what do you... Yeah. I mean, is it just like I've so, published these papers during a PhD or, yeah. Yeah. So actually generally in, in the application, there'll be, um, you, you probably want to mention a bit about yourself in the proposal as well, but generally in the application, there will be some sort of short statement, short, short kind of personal statement where you do explain, yeah, why you're the best okay. person ever. Um, <laughs> uh, which the majority of us, we don't think we're the best uh, person ever, but yeah, it's, it's about explaining you know, what you've done, like literally the achievements you have, whether you've got papers, awards, any small grants or anything like that presented at conferences, just showing that, you know, you've been doing interesting work that has been well, well received by others. And so it is both about showing your kind of competence that you literally have the skills to do it. And also that mm-hmm. you're doing stuff that people kind of care about as well. Um, right. They were sort of starting to make some sort of impact on the field. 
Um, right, it's not just I wrote a paper and put it on archive and three people have downloaded it, but it's yes. more like people actually care about this a bit. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and to some extent, this is kind of silly because the fact that things like grants help you get more grants is a, yeah, <laughs> that yeah. doesn't make sense at all. But unfortunately, you know, having those sort of things can, uh, can help, uh, strengthen your application. And it's also, especially for fellowships, explaining why you are the person for that project. So, you know, if you can explain that you've acquired a certain set of skills that make you the right person to do this work and that, you know, no one else could do it quite as well as you could. And um, that's always going to be I mean, very helpful. Which, you know, I mean, you're, you're smiling again whilst you're saying that because you're too modest to actually believe it, I think. But, <laughs> um, but the thing is also like, I guess, like the way I think about it is that I just don't think there are many people who have thought of all of these, about these specific topics that I've thought about. Yeah. And that's just because some of them seem a bit random and left field. And, you know, I think just many people for random reasons, if you are interested in some slightly unusual things, then combining them will actually make you the expert on that just yeah. because there's no one else really. Yeah. I mean, as long as, you know, as long as it culminates into something yeah, yeah. Uh, that's going to be <laughs> an interesting <laughs> and uh, achievable research project, then yes, combining different interests that other people don't have, you know, haven't thought of combining is an easy way to make you stand out as the one person to do this. Um um, yeah. How did you go about the computational modeling thing if you hadn't done it yet? Did you sell that as like the, here's a new thing I want to add? Or did, like, did you feel like you needed to say why you, how, that you were able to learn it? Or how do you go about like, yeah, if you want to learn something new and yeah. like, you haven't done yet where it might be difficult to say why you're the right person to do it? So most, well, I mean, speaking for the, the ones I know about, most of these postdoctoral fellowships, a core component of them is training. So they are designed to help you apply some sort of skill that you may not have already. And so in my case, it was very easy to then say, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't know this computational modeling stuff. Um, I'm going to learn it by working with the best people in the world, uh, through this fellowship. And so I think the combination of, you know, having shown that I can do relatively <laughs> kind of technical research projects, I guess, mm-hmm. previously, and that'll be working with amazing people. Uh, and that I have a project that seems to make sense, I think is a, is probably enough to demonstrate that that's a reasonable training goal and that's something I can achieve. If you have no training yeah. goals, if there's nothing you're going to train in, then you're probably not going to get the fellowship because you're kind of lacking one of the key criteria. There's no point in, in uh, For giving this you, fellowship, yeah. yeah, there's no point in giving you money to train in something when you don't need training. <laughs> Um, so, so yeah, you want, you want to be like kind of in, in the right position, but, not, but you need to explain why this fellowship is, is, is going to help you kind of find, you know, finalize your training, make you kind of, kind of establish you as, as the person who can really do all this work and um, based on that potential that you have to begin with. Is, is the, is the phrasing then, um, I'm, I'm the best scientist I've ever lived, but there's this one thing that I don't know. Exactly. And I'm going to the best people in the world to learn that thing. Yeah. That's, that's basically it. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad you're complete now. That must be <laughs> yes, <good. laughs> exactly. Not a single skill missing now. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. I guess the idea is saying this is something I'd like to learn, but I will be able to learn it based on these other things yeah. I've done. I think it's al- yeah. it's also good if, if you can show that you have a, a sort of vision for where you're going to be in the future in five years' time. And, and you, after if you the can fellowship, s- you mean? Yeah. So if you yeah. if you can say. Like in my case, you know, I wanted to be someone who can, who's established the computational underpinnings of anxiety and can start to translate that into, 
and clinical settings. You know, I have this clinical knowledge already. I've done neuroimaging already. The one thing I'm lacking is all this expertise in computational modeling. And so this is going to fill that yeah. gap. And with all those skills together, by the end of this fellowship, I'll be in a place to be able to really start making a massive impact which like it feels awful to say that it's stupid <laughs> but, but, but yeah that's just between us are yeah. you <laughs> uh, I, I, I mean actually genuinely slightly more than i would have genuinely thought i would be so okay i, I, I it has worked in that i have filled the gaps in my knowledge yeah. and i now have the kind of complete skill set that i that i felt i needed um so yeah it did what it was supposed to do i don't know if i'm going to change the world but but you know probably not but um but you learned computational modeling so that's a start yes yeah yeah um so for your proposal right it said 1500 words not really enough space to go on to detail in terms of like what exactly you're going to do yeah did you nevertheless sketch out expert like already have plans for experiments either because you just had those ideas or because you you created them to write the proposal and make it like more realistic or something or do you not even need to think about that level at that stage i'm just curious you know sometimes you might need lots of detail to then ignore it and write the bigger picture story yeah i no, i I definitely had more concrete ideas than i put in the proposal i don't know if they're good ideas because i think i ended up then carrying them out and realizing that i need to change them but yeah i thought about it in more depth than i than it appeared in the proposal and that also became important when I had to then interview for the thing later, because then you, you know, they do ask you more detailed questions. Um, but yeah, th- th- this was just, just my kind of approach. And I've definitely, again, seen proposals where people have very well thought out experiments uh, in the proposal. And that also seems to, to go down well. So there's no right or wrong way to do it. I don't think. And it probably depends on what exactly you're proposing. I think it probably would have perhaps seemed a little bit weird if I'd said that I need to train in computational modeling and then had very clear ideas right. about exactly how I was going to do that modeling that I don't know <laughs> yeah. how to do. Yeah, these are um, the parameters. This is the... Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Whereas if, if there was a, a part of the proposal that was more kind of clearly based on what I'd done before, maybe more detail mm-hmm. would okay. be appropriate yeah. there. I don't know. Um, so the, the next step is, I guess we're still writing the proposals, so now they, we have to rewrite the proposal, which yes. <laughs> usually is a slightly longer part than the writing proposal. Yeah, yeah I mean, I guess this... Uh, how you go about doing that and getting feedback, I'm assuming, will depend on the person writing it and the sponsors and whatever. Yes. Right? But again, using you as an example, did you more or less finalize it and give it to your sponsors to, to check over? Or did they, like, right from the beginning, say, like, just send me a first draft and we'll, like, form it together? Or how does how did that work? Um, I think I got it to the point where I thought it was done. Um, <laughs> and then said, like, thanks sponsor. for the first draft. Yeah, That's exactly. Yeah, then... Uh, I mean, I, you know, it, it definitely, it definitely wasn't the sort of thing where it was written jointly. I don't think it should be, um, mm-hmm. because ultimately you should, you know, it's, it's supposed to be your work. And yeah. if you have too much input, then later on at the interview, I think it will become apparent that you didn't necessarily write the thing yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, for me, it was very much me writing it and getting feedback and yeah, it's just kind of going back and forth until things were perfect. And also, you know, it's the sort of thing where, because it's so short, at least you feel like every sentence matters. And so you may well go back and forth over two drafts on just like two sentences somewhere, potentially. <laughs> um, and a lot of it is about phrasing, you know, making things sound exciting, which in our ordinary scientific writing, we don't tend to do. Um, but people who've got more experience writing grants are better at doing. And so those are the sort of things where your supervisor, can, your sponsor, sorry, can really, can really help. Um, so yeah, it, it shouldn't be written 
literally jointly, but you should definitely have a lot of guidance and input from anyone who will give it to you. <laughs> and I'm assuming you ask then colleagues, friends also. Yes. To, yeah. And I guess yeah. the thing with 1,500 words is it's not a huge burden to ask someone to, to exactly, read it. No, it's not like I mean, this like 20, 30 page thing they have to read. Yeah. No, I asked a few people to give feedback and people were more than happy to. Um, and then, you know, I've returned the favor later as well. So it, it, it all works out. <laughs> <laughs> it came back to you. Yeah. It did, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess I'm finding it slightly difficult. I mean, I guess it's just the nature of trying to make something that's like, why not just specifically about your thing to kind of, you know, make this a bit more concrete. But I guess it's a rewriting process, right? You it, it, have to it, it sit is. down and do it. And Yeah, and yeah. some ideally you want to get started as early as possible because it's really helpful if you can just leave it for a week and come back to it and then you'll realize something didn't make sense, um, which you wouldn't when you've been working on it for seven days straight. Yeah. Um, I, I always feel like with with papers when you write them the best is probably to just let them leave like uh, let them lay for half a year yeah it's not really realistic I, yeah no i, I agree. think that would yeah. be ideal yeah and i mean i think it's also there, there's also two stages of getting feedback as well there's the writing and there's the science as well um so mm -hmm. at earlier stages you probably want to get feedback on the the actual projects you're proposing and then later you want to get feedback on the the literal words you're using to describe them mm -hmm. um i think also i don't know if we don't think we'll come on to this later but there are things that you need to mention in the proposal that i've not talked about but which mm -hmm. are generally very important at least for the one i i had um and i think are quite important for grants generally people generally say that you have to refer to the person the place and the project and sometimes also add on the time as well so mm -hmm. uh, the person is you it's why you are the person to be doing the work, which we've talked about about a bit already. The place is why you're going to be doing it at the best place in the world. And why is that place the only place you could possibly go? And why is that going to be the one, the, the, the place and sponsors who will give you this exciting training and amazing skills that will propel you to superstardom? Um, and then the project, which is the, the actual science, of course, <laughs> which you kind of, <laughs> that should also be in this. Yeah. You, you probably need to be doing decent science. And then sometimes also people talk about the, the timing, which is why are you doing this now? Why could this not have been done five, 10 years ago? Right. So timing in terms of not your career stage, but yes, more literally of, the field. Exactly. Yeah. Because it's really, you know, it always seems really exciting if, if it's like, you know, five years ago, we didn't have these methods, but now all these exciting advances have happened, which means we can answer these questions in a way we couldn't possibly before. Well, that helped you, right, with competition? Yeah, no, exactly. I guess yeah. like the, I mean, I guess in a way it had been around for quite a bit already, but I guess like yeah, the, no, the, the, new. the review papers called Computational Psychiatry came out in like 2014 and that <laughs> yes. kind of stuff, right? Like, and there's so. a, the famous rule that there always has to be more reviews in Computational Psychiatry than empirical papers, <laughs> yeah, right, um, yes. which I think is now maybe fading away. Uh -huh. Um but, but yeah, it was, yeah, for me that exactly it was, you know, we didn't have these tools until recently. Now we can use them to answer exciting questions. And, you know, I'm bringing these, this certain skill set that will allow me to, in combination with the training I'm getting. Answer that just questions. seems like a generic advantage for anyone doing cognitive neuroscience, right? Well, because like the fellowship is like biology, biomedicine, right? Yeah. It's not just neuroscience, right? Like, I mean, you said somewhere, yes. I think there's 15 to 20 places per half year or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. But like, of course, there's like people doing cellular, whatever, oh, yeah. Yeah. right? Um, yes. But it, it seems like cognitive neuroscience as a whole field is such a, I mean, most fields are quickly developing and new and everything, but I would imagine more so. Than I don't know. I'm not sure. I, no? I think okay. there, I mean, if you think about at the more kind of cellular level and, you know, in animal models, the, 
the advent of optogenetics and things like that, which is still relatively right. recent, has really accelerated yeah. work in that area in in a way that uh, we've you know, we've not had anything like that. Pixels. Yeah, exa- yeah, neuropixels, exactly. Yeah, like we haven't had the same kind of advances in human cognitive neuroscience. Yeah. Computational Unless modeling you're using like thing, the, 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 the new MEG sensors, I guess that would work, but. Yes, yeah. yes. But also you need to be using them for, for something new as well. It's not just, you know, we're going to do the same old stuff with a new right, fancy right. method. Yeah, um, fair enough. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think it's, there are, Always going to be advances coming about, hopefully in, in most fields. If not, I think we're kind of failing as, as a field. <laughs> yeah. um, and so if you can identify those advances and jump on them, then that's great. It, you know, it, it can result in people doing stuff that's considered trendy um, yeah, for the yeah. sake of it being trendy as much as anything, which I guess isn't a good thing. But equally, I think there's a concern that if you're using methods that have been around for 20 years, um, yeah, yeah. No, why hasn't someone done this before? It, maybe it's because it's just not something that's worth doing. Um, that might which be isn't, my problem. Well, <laughs> I don't like it silly yeah. because that's often not not a realistic criticism, but I think that's often how it can be perceived. No, I think it is a fair criticism. Like, if this is such a great idea and you could have done this ages ago, then why has no one done it? Like, I think it is, a, yeah. to some extent, a decent criticism. Yeah. Or a question, at least. Um, yeah. And I think, like, this, you know, this is all something I've thought about. It's like, why hasn't anyone done this? Like, it seems fairly obvious. Like, what's the catch, basically? Right? Yeah, yes. And so and... And this is why it can be helpful as well to, you know, get early feedback from people who know about the stuff because they can tell you <laughs> why it hasn't been done if there is an obvious reason. <laughs> so, oh, because it's a terrible idea. That's what Yes, it's better to know that yeah. up front if that is the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll ask someone before I apply, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I guess step seven, complete the application, and step eight, submit the application seems like fairly straightforward <laughs> steps, I'd imagine. Stressful. Uh, because by that yeah. point, you already have your sponsor, your proposal, yeah. et cetera, right? So. Yeah. The, the only thing that can be difficult in complete the application, well, not the only thing, but one thing that definitely is difficult is if you have to sort out the financial uh, aspects of the proposal. Right. Like how um, much you money you need for testing yes. or whatever or... so I, I was very lucky in that the fellowship i had was just a fixed amount and ucl were very happy for me to basically just cost my salary and then nothing else um and just say okay we know what how, how much you're getting anyway it's fine but i know even for that other people have had to do full costings and for any other grant where it's not a fixed amount you will have to cost out everything and that is often a painful process um and can take a little while and you, you know yeah. you rely on admin departments who have a lot of other grants to be costing other than yours so that's something that you need to think about sooner rather than later if it is something you need to do so maybe whilst we're on the topic of time maybe i'll ask the question now how long ahead should you think about this for example i've got a year pretty much exactly left on my contract and it will pretty much I have to finish in that time. Yeah. Um, so am I already five years too late? Am I, no. <laughs> do I still have half a year? What's kind of the, when should you start thinking? Of, so let's say like I wanted to apply for fellowship um, once I've finished here. I don't know whether that's the case, but let's, you know, let's just say I have a year left. Like how, um, yeah, should I already start contacting people? Or it, it, It's going to depend on when you want to start the fellowship. If, if you very much want it to be, you know, I finish this thing and then move on to a fellowship immediately after and I have no, gaps or whatever in between yeah. then you'll have to judge it based on the timing of you know, the application cycle and everything ideally i think you want to be thinking about it at least like six months in advance of the deadline and potentially have been thinking about ideas for it a little bit in advance of that 
having said that, I know people have applied for these things in like two months and, <laughs> and it's been fine. Um, I think as, generally, as, yeah. a, as an aside, I, uh, in my life, every single application I think that I planned out didn't work and almost at least half of the applications I did like in a weekend worked. So yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm not so sure much, what the, what the lesson yeah, is from this, but there's so much randomness in this that like, yeah, there's in some senses it doesn't feel worth putting in like six months of effort or anything. But I think yeah. it's more, more in terms of the practicalities of needing to work out a relationship with a sponsor and get them to, mm-hmm. to, you know, agree to be involved. And, you know, if that requires you going and giving a talk at their lab, for example, that's going to take a month, potentially more to get organized. And right. um, if you need to do costings, you need to probably have that worked out or start working that, you know, month or maybe more in advance of the deadline anyway, getting letters of support from people can take a while. So it's, it's more just giving you the time to kind of relax about those things than anything yeah. and having it be able to get more feedback on your ideas and your proposal. Um, yeah, I guess so. that's the next thing you can't get much feedback if you've got a day left. Exactly. Yeah. So the more time, the better, but it, you know, people get them without spending months on them. So it's not the end of the world. If you can't do that. Yeah. One thing I heard sometime about applying for grants, I think it's almost general or something like that. You know, you shouldn't really see a grant application per se as just writing a grant application. You should see it as like developing your ideas yeah. and reading papers you otherwise might not read, you know, yeah. like just doing science basically. So I think in some sense it's also just, you know, working on your ideas. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I know, I know people who've kind of put together grants and, even if the grants have got funded, that's kind of turned into a review paper or something like that because they've had to <laughs> review so much literature as part of writing the grant that they thought, why not use that? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's not, it's not time wasted at all. It can be part of what you should be doing, I guess, in your job anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's part of, it's part of research. So yeah, I, it's not, <laughs> it's not a bad thing to spend time on it, even if it doesn't get funded. Mm-hmm. So you have like step nine is submitting the application again. I guess this is, Somewhat, yeah. but not entirely specific to the. It's it was quite specific to. to that scheme. Um, so, but I think it's not always the case by any means that you need to. Yeah, it's multiple. weird. You mentioned yeah, at some point. I think like if you go through the numbers, you said something like you know very roughly like half of the people get invited to submit a full application. Yeah. Then half of those uh, get invited to the interview, and then half of those get the yes. thing, which means like one eighth of the applicants roughly get it, which is about twelve and a half percent, right? Very yeah. roughly. Um, it's funny, like at first when I thought I heard like half, 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 I thought well, that doesn't sound too bad. Uh, you know, I mean, I've applied to things that seem more competitive than that. But then you also think like, yeah, but 10% of people who've like put a lot of effort into this and are probably yeah. not the worst PhD students to begin with. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Is pretty Absolutely. tough. Yeah. No, the odds are not, are generally not good. And yeah, as I said before, a lot of it is just pure randomness uh, that you can't control. One panel may look at you and think you're, the perfect applicant, another panel may look at you and think that you've got no chance, which is completely out of your control. It doesn't matter what you do. Um, so, How yeah, many did you apply for? Well, did you just apply for this and it worked? <laughs> well, <laughs> but I, only, only because there wasn't, there wasn't really much that appealed to me otherwise uh, in terms of fellowships. I think had I not got this, I would have done a postdoc and maybe looked at other opportunities a bit later. But at the time, this was the only one I was kind of interested in applying for. Um, it's. Sorry. I think I'm asking the wrong people here for advice for postdoc applications <laughs> because you applied to one fellowship, arguably one of the best ones, and got it. And Matthias basically mailed like five people and they got a job. It's, I think I'm asking the people. Or is it just that? Know. Can it just be that easy? I, I don't know. 
My, I mean, again, I, I went a different route, but I think with standard postdoc positions, I I really wouldn't worry too much about getting one at all. You know, getting one in, in your dream lab doing exactly what you want to do, that's probably going to be tough. But maintaining employment in, in <laughs> an area that you're interested in, I don't think is that tough. I mean, I've also heard from the other side, you know, people recruiting postdocs often find it actually quite tough to find someone um, to fill the position who... It's going to be, you know, it's going to do a decent job. Um, so yeah, I've actually heard the exact same thing from people. Yeah. I mean, my, my, the reason I have a PhD position, I think, is because they couldn't find a postdoc to do, who would like, well, fit the role. And I mean, yeah. here we are. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm not doing the job properly. So that's much of it. I've heard it like from people in, uh, like to me, it makes sense. Like if you had like a small university in a small town that no one wants to go to. Yeah, you'd you'd not be that surprised if it might be difficult to get some. But I've heard from good supervisors in ta- in cities or towns or whatever where you'd think the town itself would attract people. Oh yeah, and them just going like, no one good is applying. Yeah, no, I yeah. <laughs> well, I had a yeah. supervisor who said like, even half of the applicants I get, I don't know whether they know who I am, just from their like <laughs> application letter. Like it's so generic. Yeah, it's like, I don't even know yeah. whether they've read the ad basically yeah. yeah so yeah i i really wouldn't worry too much about you know, getting some sort of postdoc the, obviously the fellowship route is, is more competitive and yeah. more reliant on luck and so it's always going to be a bit more of a risky option um but also like you if you do try that and it doesn't work out you you shouldn't feel too bad about yourself because again it is largely luck <laughs> yeah and i think so. one thing i'm assuming this is similar at the postdoc level as it is at the phd level I remember, so in our masters, we were like 20 people or something, and all of us were pretty good and applied to, you know, the best PhD programs you can apply for and that kind of stuff, right? And almost all of us got rejected in the first rounds, right? Yeah. And not everyone, but like lots of people got rejected in the for several ones that they really wanted to go to. And now when you look at what they're doing, it's like, that doesn't look any worse. Like, you're still doing a great, like, on paper even, it's like... I'm not yeah. sure like the thing you got rejected from first was any yeah. worse than what you're doing now. And and for, yeah, certainly for the postdoc fellowships, by virtue of having had one, I've then got to, you know, lots of people contact me to ask me to, you know, help with mock interviews or looking over proposals mm-hmm. or whatever. And so I know a lot of people who subsequently applied for them. And of all those people, I would not say that the people who haven't got them have were any worse to begin with or have done any worse <laughs> subsequently, yeah. you know, the fellowship, people who've done the fellowships have obviously kind of got to personalize their training a bit more, perhaps go to yeah. exciting places and things like that. But in terms of the overall career success, I don't know if it has made a, a huge difference. And yeah, certainly in terms of qualifications and brilliance of the people who've applied and been successful versus unsuccessful, no difference at all. <laughs> like I know so many amazing people who've not got them. Yeah, so if you are amazing, you're not guaranteed success. If you're not Absolutely. amazing, you might be successful Absolutely. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um anyway, so I guess we've now uh reached the interview stage. Oh yes. The, the most fun <laughs> stage of of any application process. Yeah. Um and it's so much fun that you wrote an entire blog post about this. Uh, so there's one basically <laughs> for steps well, one to ten, ten being the interview, and then there's another one just about step ten. Yeah, maybe I'll start here with something that I uh, the, the Twitter thread I sent you. That oh, yes. um, uh, I'll, I'll put a link to this in the description. But I think 
so this is something about tenure track job talks, but I think yeah, I'm assuming it applies very much to fellowships also. So this is from a guy called yeah. Jonathan Birch, who's a associate professor at LSE. Uh, he said, I must have seen more than 40 tenure track job talks by now. Here are some general reflections on what works and what doesn't work. The best job talks start by giving an overview of your emerging research program, then zooming in to an example of your best recent work and zooming out at the end to lay out future directions. Start and end by generating excitement around your long-term trajectory. The work in the middle should be an example of your best work, not some half-baked unfinished new thing. Save the unfinished new thing for informal chat. The point is to establish that your wider research program is not bluster. You're already doing excellent work, so the exciting future directions are also credible. For the same reason, it's better if the work in the middle is developing a positive idea, not just saying, Big Shot X says this, but they're wrong, because. <laughs> Present your ideas. Be the Big Shot X of the future. People in the hiring department will be thinking, why is this work important for the discipline? What is its significance beyond the discipline? What is excellent about it? What is original about it? A great job talk will answer these questions so that no one needs to ask them. And finally, it is hard to get all of this right, of course, but that's mainly because it's hard to develop an exciting, incredible research program. The tragic thing is when candidates have done this, but don't explain it. You've done the hard bit, now do the easy bit. <laughs> and I guess this also applies to writing the proposal. Yes. Um, yeah. But is do is there, I don't know, this was maybe quite a lot of information, uh, <laughs> but is there anything there that you think makes particular sense or that you did I mean, do if, or didn't do? Or, if yeah. we're thinking about postdoctoral fellowships, it's a little bit simpler because you're not expected to have a whole yep, research yep. program by any means. But certainly in terms of explaining, you know, why this is an exciting project that you're proposing and, and you know, establishing your credibility, um, that's definitely a big thing. The difficulty with, with the interviews that are generally done for these kinds of fellowships is that you don't really get so much of a chance to explain yourself uh, compared to something like a job talk. It's more people questioning you. And so you have less control about, you know, over what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Um, so I mean, first interviews are not common to all fellowships by any means. Plenty of them do not have interviews in the oh, UK. Really? Okay. We, gen we generally tend to do interviews. I know. Fellowships in the US often won't do them. And there are various problems with interviews, which I think, I mean, it isn't necessarily always the best way of making these decisions, but it is what it is. And that when they are done, the format is basically that you will probably do some sort of short presentation. So about five minutes. And then the panel will be asking you questions to clarify things about your proposal or maybe ask you about things that reviewers might have identified in your proposal. Basically, seeking to to verify that yeah you have that credibility that you know your stuff you can answer their questions there are no fatal flaws and also particularly in case of, case of postdoctoral fellowships that you are the one who came up with the research proposal because it is quite possible that you know your sponsor may have decided they want some more funding and applied on your yeah. behalf for <laughs> essentially for um a postdoc fellowship hopefully that's not something that's done very often but um i mean is one bunch the... of interviews to check that so yeah, it's the um just to maybe add slash question that or not add a question to that is that I mean I'm assuming right now that by now they've established that the proposal is good. Like in a way you yes. don't almost need to defend the proposal per se that much. It's more about like uh, is it more about saying did is this person who wrote the proposal and who is good or so it, are they still really do they still want to find out whether the proposal itself is good? It's going to depend on how they do the assessment procedure. So for some fellowships, the shortlisting will be done prior to getting reviews from 
experts and then they'll send it out to review. And so a proposal that they've shortlisted may come back from review with quite critical comments. And so then that'll, you know, they want to clarify that in the interview. And so then a lot of it will probably focus on, on the proposal or maybe the panel members themselves have a particular question about the methods you're using because they use them themselves or something like that. And they want to press you on that a bit further. So it won't necessarily exclude the project. In fact, in some cases, it may be quite heavily emphasizing the project. It really is going to depend on, on the panel on the, on the day as well. Okay. And there's not necessarily um, that much consistency across interviews. So I know that for some schemes, they are uh, funders are making interviews a bit more standardized across candidates so that you will all, all be asked roughly the same set of questions. But otherwise, yeah, it's kind of up to the panel of the day and what they want to ask you about. It could be anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really, I always, I mean, I guess like a lot of the, what we're talking about, uh, I've been like the idiosyncrasies of somehow selecting who's going to be good in the future and how impossible that is yeah. and that it's all luck <laughs> yeah. anyway. But I find it so hard, like if you're, you know, like as you said, like it's it's probably good to have something standardized. But I remember also I had an interview for some PhD scheme at UCL and they asked i think they basically had a list of questions asked me and it just felt so like detached and unpersonal yes it's like yeah, i know do you not want to like engage with me <laughs> at all? yeah that, yeah that's yeah. one problem with that that approach i but yeah 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 but so the the interview is generally a horrible experience i think as i said in that blog post i don't think many people find them particularly enjoyable because you are faced with a huge number of potentially of scary people asking you about all the flaws in your in your research and in yourself as well potentially yeah. um, so it's not fun but it's something that you you just kind of need to manage somehow and yeah. yeah and i guess some of the things you mentioned is also that some things seem worse than they are for example i think you mentioned you know you often have these fairly large panels i think for yours you said 15 to 20 people and only like three people will be paying attention the others will be yeah. looking at their laptop or whatever but i think often they set it up right they they'll have like one day where they'll do most of the people or whatever so not everyone is there for every person right so yeah, they'll just exactly. they're not they're not really disinterested it's just that not their time to really be interested yeah it, yeah of course so the the whole thing i think does just <laughs> the whole setup seem, makes it seem a lot worse than it actually is um but i, I should say also like generally the, the when when I've done these interviews, generally the, the the panel are are supportive and do want you to do well. You know, they're not out to get you really, and they're, they're not trying to make you feel uncomfortable. Um, but you know, it's hard to avoid feeling uncomfortable in that sort of situation. And I guess often for them, you might also have been like the tenth person who came in that day, so they're, yeah, they've been sitting there for five hours or whatever. Yeah, or they're like about to go and have lunch, and they're, they're, you know, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, that's another randomness thing, right? That's definitely going to exactly. Like, if you're the first person or second person of the day, I think you've got better chances than. I I don't. I wonder whether they've looked at the statistics of this. I don't, I don't know. I, you'd hope there wouldn't be any. I'd tiny be surprised there, right? Like at some point, you're just like. I mean, we once had it with flatmates, right? After the third person, everything just starts to like in your mind, just like. Yeah. Um, you start I, losing like the contours of who's coming and everyone. Yeah. Yeah, I I think there are probably procedures in place to to try and limit those effects anyway. I hope. Um, I guess maybe yeah, that's why they have multiple knows. people doing it anyway. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, is there any advice other than the generic stuff like practice your talk, be understandable to many people, uh, and not just the experts? Uh, probably. Um, yeah. 
<laughs> the frustrating thing for me is that like I'm, I'm I feel like I'm relatively good at giving advice for interviews. I'm terrible at following myself. Um, <laughs> well, that's fine as long as the advice but, is good. Well, but so one of the reasons why though is that it's very difficult to know how you present yourself, and so one piece of advice that I would always give is to record yourself giving your your presentation right. and record yourself if you have some sort of mock interview that you do with colleagues or whatever because you will pick up on things that you're doing that you're not otherwise aware of <laughs> um yeah. uh, you'll you'll pick up on the fact that you're speaking far too fast and you can't actually understand what you're saying or that you're saying um uh like in between every other word so yeah that is a very helpful thing to do and, yes. and not just for interviews also just for presentations generally if you give a talk it's quite um, embarrassing and horrible but also quite helpful to record yourself and listen back to it before you do it for real as someone who's done this 50 times now on my podcast yes. i would recommend maybe <laughs> not doing this right before the interview for the first time because you'll be horrified at how stupid and <laughs> dumb and whatever you sound maybe do this like a few times before so you kind of get exactly. used to it yes because you're definitely going to have an initial shock of just oh, yeah. your own you, voice and yeah it's horrible listening to yourself absolutely <laughs> yeah although you do get used to it that's the good thing i mean i've yeah, gotten used true. to it by now so i'm not um <laughs> not necessarily i think I, I sound the smartest all the time but i i'm not like cringing every time i speak on the podcast and i edit it's a nice development <laughs> Yeah. I don't know whether it's like just numbing <laughs> of sensation and pain or, I've, <laughs> or what it is, but yeah, maybe don't do this the day before the interview because then you'll just be even more self-conscious. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the other thing to say is to take advantage of all the help you can get. Generally people will be quite happy to help you out with practicing yeah. your interview and, and presentation and things like that. And that kind of support is extremely valuable, but particularly if it's support from people who have been interviewed themselves or have sat on panels um everyone and, go male toby yeah yeah <laughs> i know your panels you said sorry I've, I've done, but still yeah, you've been in the interview yeah I've, I've sat on mock panels for enough people at this point and <laughs> um I, I i know people find that the mock interviews they do in advance are worse than the real thing so if you can find some particularly nasty mock interviewers that's always helpful i, I once had someone in our masters uh she invited three people to give like a phd like application talk or whatever and she specifically invited me because she said, I need an arsehole there. So that was nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like, it's I, quite, I, I can be yeah. critical. <laughs> it's, it it, it's really good to be able to practice, you know, answering stuff under pressure. Because then if you do go into the interview and you get pressure yeah. on you to answer a specific question about your, your methods that you're not, <laughs> that you wouldn't otherwise be confident about answering, you know, you're ready for that. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I guess, yeah, practice and recording of that yeah the recording is actually funny that i hadn't even thought of that but yeah that's a, that's a very good idea yeah, it's um very helpful but otherwise the i think the the biggest things that i think i've seen in the you know, mock interviews i've done with people that cause problems are number one mm -hmm. just people having problems with anxiety um which is one reason as someone who studies anxiety i don't think interviews are necessarily the best way to award these things because some people yeah. just kind of fall to pieces in that situation and that's you know you can't really blame them for that but practice it's not can indicative help of how they do research exactly no no not in the slightest so practice can help with that but that is something to be aware of and the other thing is some people are just not so good at answering questions in a brief direct manner so mm -hmm. 
you don't want to be waffling on for five minutes in response to every question. You want to just very neatly and directly answer the question that's been asked of you. Um, and that can take a bit of practice um, to get a hang of. And it's also another thing that's where it's good to record yourself because you often don't know that you're waffling until you've, you've heard it back. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I mean, I've had to do this in minor things where, you know, I had to, for PhD applications or whatever, do something as I'd like talk for five minutes. And then you, you do, yeah, I've got this. And then you do like your last rehearsal and you realize you're like 11 minutes long or something. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So yeah. <laughs> um, I also like your, your last point of advice, which is read your application. Yes. Because I think it's very, yeah, it's very easy to forget what you actually wrote in the thing. And Absolutely. Yeah. Because often, you know, there'll be quite a gap between you writing it and being interviewed. So you, you need to remember what it is you're actually supposed <laughs> yeah. to do. And also, if, if you put a sentence saying you're going to do a specific thing and you forget about that and then they pick up on it and ask you about it, you can't just, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you don't, that also, don't know what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I guess it's particularly difficult if you like develop your ideas and you, it slightly changes or something. Yeah. Then you start. Your new yes. stuff becomes what you think you wrote. Those are probably the main things, right? I think so. I mean, um, you, you could probably do a whole hour, hour and a half on just interview skills and stuff. On all sorts but, of things, um, yeah. I mean, I guess this as, is similar to your blog post, more like yeah, an overview. as a brief interview, I think we've covered the, um, the key parts. Thankfully, interviews are not necessary for all fellowships, <laughs> which is a good thing, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, one thing I'd just like to... Uh, I guess we kind of already talked about this in the beginning, but that's something that I feel like it might still be the thing that might be on people's mind the most. It's just the question of, or at least it's still on my mind, is the question of like, am I even qualified to apply to this? Because for example, like when I think about, you know, like where will I be in a year? Right. Yeah. It's like, okay, I've, as you know, I've got one publication in Royal Society of Open Science, which is, you know, it's a good publication, but yeah. no one's going to go, oh, wow, you got into that journal, right? It's kind yeah. of like a, <laughs> You know, it's yeah. it's, uh, it's one of those, I think, and I'll have another one like that, probably. Two of those kind of, so show like, okay, you can write a paper, you can take, you know, do every part of an experiment and like yeah. that kind of stuff, publication process. But it's, for example, in my case, unlikely I'll have anything that's really going to, by the point I apply, let's, let's say I apply like in nine months or something, right? I don't think yeah. there's going to be anything like that on my CV that really makes people pay particular attention to my publication yes, list, yeah. right? And maybe just this one question: Did you already have that when you applied? Because I'm, you know, I never in I terms know of exactly publications when you applied, when the publications were accepted, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, I somehow managed to get out a fair few publications during my PhD. Although, I mean, a couple of the ones I had in sort of major journals were meta-analyses, so it wasn't like you know data i collected myself or anything so yeah like cv wise i would say i mean it's, it's hard to, to judge but i think you know i was yeah. in a reasonably strong position um but i i certainly know people who've got these things with fellowships more like your with cvs more like yours and it's not just about having flashy papers and flashy journals this is also another thing that will definitely definitely very much vary from country to country as well um mm-hmm. I know funders in the UK, panel members and reviewers are explicitly told you are not allowed to mention you know, journal names, impact factors, things like that. And any comment related okay. to that will be discounted. That, that kind of prestige is still probably going to impact yeah, their assessment. Yeah, you still see it though. It's like, yes, where is it? You still okay. see it and it will still impact how they, they, they feel about you, which is, is a shame. But I believe more in, like in America, you get that a lot more explicitly. So it d- depends on, on, on where you're coming from. 
But I think it's, it's as much as anything, it's kind of showing that you've had some level of independent thought that you've done, you, you have the kind of practical research skills. And so if you have a paper where you can say, you know, I, I had this idea. I carried out this project to test this hypothesis I had. I was able to use all these methods to do it that I've trained in during my PhD and it produced this really cool output. Then that's great. It doesn't matter that it was published in a journal that is not science or nature. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So it, it's as much kind of what you're showing with those publications as where they're published or whether the results are significant even. I get the feeling at least that reviewers and panels are getting a bit more, uh, a bit less strict about wanting publications in top tier journals all the time. Um, yeah. so, I mean, it's, it's one of those weird things where, you know, I'd, I'd feel stupid not applying, right. Just because yeah. that's the case. Oh yeah. But it yeah. is something like in the back of my mind, like, it's like, yeah, <laughs> but you know, it would have been good better if I finished the projects I started in year one, in year one, uh, and not like let it lie for three years. PhD is then... plan, uh, and that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's unavoidable. But I mean, I I would say if you don't have any publications, then it's probably going to be tough because you've it's hard for the people judging your application to judge whether you know you're capable of producing research outputs. Yeah. If you have publications, one or two. You know uh, that should be enough to show that you can do research. <laughs> um, I guess also publications here does not necessarily mean published, right? Like I remember yeah, when I talked to Matthias yeah. Stangel, he mentioned, for example, that he, I mean, he had like some stuff from before, but from his actual PhD, he didn't have anything published when he contacted the people yet, but he could say like, oh, we've got this, for example, this was then in current biology or something like that. It's under review, yeah. right? Yeah. Like that's of course also much more than Yes, definitely. And yeah. yeah, nowadays with preprints, it's a lot easier yeah, to yeah. demonstrate that you've produced something even if it's not actually published. And you know, generally you can put those in your application and they can be counted as part of your, your CV. So yeah, you don't necessarily have to have things actually published. So I, I would always say, you know, if, if you've got a couple of publications, like one or two, go for it and, you know, it's worth a shot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess, I mean, the thing is also, I'd imagine, you know, it's, it's also a timing question, right? Like, when does your, mm. when is your paper out or whatever, your preprint out or whatever? And I feel like, yeah. you know, maybe I'm not quite there yet, like during my PhD, but then a year afterwards or something, maybe then I can try again and I already have like the basis of the application. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's often the case that waiting a year will put you in a much stronger position because you'll have new stuff out. So in that case, it's probably worth doing it. Um, yeah. It's yeah, it's going to be up to up to each person to decide when they think is the right time. But you know, <laughs> what you don't want to do is be constantly caught in the cycle of being, you know, feeling like okay, I wait next next year I'll have a new paper yeah, out. Yeah. Oh, but but then the year after, oh, I got rejected. Another paper. Yeah, <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So, I I yeah, don't wait too long. But <laughs> I guess like everything, just give it a go and yeah, see. It, we're yeah, the, the, best. the yeah. easiest way to not get it is to not apply. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> that's probably right. gonna work yeah you're probably yeah. not gonna get it then <laughs> yeah you're already writing yourself out we you don't apply so uh yeah yeah we'll <laughs> see okay well thank you i think uh i'm now perfectly prepared to apply for <laughs> <laughs> i don't think I, I i don't think having done the thing i'm not sure i which uh <laughs> i i certainly wouldn't guarantee myself success uh again because there's so much ch like random chance in it so um 
yeah, yeah. you can never be 100% certain that you'll get it in any sense but yeah but you can try <laughs> yeah exactly okay well thanks thank you